Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Good morning, I'm Kurt Gamble. And I'm Rich Verma. Kurt, great to see you. Glad we can do another podcast in our virtual format and also on our regular platforms. And we have a terrific guest today. Absolutely. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by a good friend who has deep experience in the U.S. defense and security policy, Chris Brose. Chris is the head of strategy at the U.S. technology firm Andrilla Industries and is also a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace here in Washington, D.C. He was staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee from 2015 to 2018, where he played an integral part in navigating and coordinating U.S. defense policy through the U.S. Senate and has also served as policy advisor to U.S. Senator John McCain and U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. It's great to have you today, Chris. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Kurt. Thanks, Rich. It's great to be here. Chris, we're going to talk a lot about your new venture, which is your book, which is incredible, called The Kill Chain, Defending America in the Future of High-Tech Warfare. It's gotten incredible reviews. We're really excited for you. And I want to hear about all about what that process was like about writing that book. But again, we're, we're really so thrilled you're with us today. Kurt and I have known you for a long time. But for our listeners, I think it'd be great if they could learn a little bit about who Chris Bros is and how you went from being a speechwriter for Colin Powell and Condi Rice to working for the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Take, take us a little bit through your past. Sure. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, I, I've been incredibly fortunate to have a series of awesome bosses in my career. I had sort of a major turnaround in my life in the senior year of college for me, which was 9-11. And I had been sort of going down a political philosophy track, and that really steered me more in the direction of, you know, kind of more practical issues. Decided I wanted to come to Washington and focus more on foreign policy. I spent a couple of years at a magazine that we're familiar with, The National Interest, and then had a very fortuitous opportunity to go into the State Department at the tail end of the Bush administration to be a junior speechwriter for Secretary Powell. It was, again, very fortuitous, uh, very fortunate when, when Condoleezza Rice took over as secretary and, and she kind of kept the team together and was able to continue to work for her and then kind of move up to become her chief speechwriter. I left the State Department in 2008. And, um, you know, was pretty burned out of government, was pretty exhausted, thought I wanted to kind of step away from it and, you know, realized very quickly that I just, I missed it and I wanted to go back. And that's, and that's really when the opportunity with Senator McCain kind of fell on my lap. I, I didn't go looking for it. I didn't think the Congress was a place that I wanted to work. Spent most of my time in the State Department, you know, wondering why the founders didn't, you know, didn't just create two branches of government, and let the courts and the executive fight it out. You know, but our, our good mutual friend, Richard Fontaine, was kind of at the end of his time in the Senate. He was having tons of children, his, you know, tired of the campaign, was looking to do something new and different, and, uh, you know, really recommended that I throw my hat in for consideration to, to come into the Senate and do, uh, do the role of national security advisor to Senator McCain. And, you know, at first it wasn't something that I thought, you know, I, I would want to do for that very reason. I just thought, you know, gosh, the Congress looks like a, a scrum that I don't want to be a part of. But, you know, the thought was just, one way or the other, I will learn something. Uh, it'll be a, a, an interesting experience to just kind of see American foreign policy in a different dimension. I thought I'd spend a couple of years there and then sort of move on to something different. I ended up spending nine years there, You know, did probably three different jobs, got to do things and learn things and meet people and go places that I never would have imagined, learned an enormous amount about the, you know, the importance of and the role of the Congress and U.S. foreign and defense policy, and just count myself extremely fortunate for having the opportunity to work that long and that closely with someone like John McCain. 
Yeah, I just want to stay on this. The last thing you mentioned about someone like John McCain, and we know John McCain from so many different phases of his life, uh, war hero, senator, maverick. But, you know, what I was always amazed by when I got the great privilege to kind of watch him up close as well was he didn't need someone to tell him what the job description of being a senator was. He he knew each day he was going to go down to the Senate floor. He was going to shape U.S. policy. And it, didn't, it wasn't just defense and foreign policy. He was going to use the bully pulpit he had in a way. And I think new senators don't necessarily get that about the job. Like, you can make of this what you want. And he, he was incredible at that. The, the thing that I, that I always appreciated, and I came to appreciate it even more as I stayed there, was... John McCain thought of himself first and foremost as a senator, and then secondarily as a Republican senator. His identity was primarily as a legislator. And, you know, I think he saw the role of the Congress as a co-equal branch of government with unique and equal responsibilities uh, under the Constitution. That's something he took very seriously. And I think, you know, you saw a lot of people enter the Congress, you know, who were sort of looking at it as, you know, kind of a a training opportunity to go into executive branch service, run for president. And the thing that I appreciated about McCain is, yeah, he, he made his runs at the executive branch. But he understood what the legislature was and how it was different um, and and how power had to be wielded there. And I think, you know, first and foremost, you know, he understood that big and important and difficult things could only be done through the legislature in a bipartisan way. And he just had a, a series of really interesting and important allies through the course of his career, you know, whether it was Harry Reid or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or John Kerry. You know, he teamed up with these people and managed to kind of put aside the things that they disagreed on, identify the things that they did and, and really do big and important things. And that's something that I appreciated. And, and, and frankly, that's something that I think we're missing in America today. Um, you know, that, that void that he left, I think, has largely been unfilled. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciated, Chris, about you in your role with Senator McCain is I remember when I was at the State Department, occasionally we'd be on the phone and you'd say, you know, the senator's spending an awful lot of time on Iraq or Afghanistan. I want to make sure he has a balanced perspective. And you, you'd tell me the things he'd be interested in with respect to the Asia Pacific and China. And, you know, periodically you'd quietly arrange behind the back of our assistant secretary for legislative affairs. I, I can't remember who was that. Oh, it was Rich. Yeah, sorry. Oh, thanks, sir. Yeah. You'd arrange for us to come up and privately brief him and, and the team a little bit about what was going on in Asia. But I really appreciated that. He was very curious. He asked a lot of questions. And I remember, you know, he even took advice about when you would take him to Shangri-La in Singapore, he'd ask what countries or what places to go to. I remember telling him, you know, you really should go to Taiwan. And lo and behold, the whole team went. And I always wondered what it was like. You had an opportunity to travel with them on these almost legendary trips, almost like a, you know, a different era, you know, where senators, you know, kind of, you know, got along and stuff like that. What was that like? Those were the highlights of the job for me. I mean, I got to do awesome things in my nine years in the Senate, but the, the travel, international travel with Senator McCain was the best for a lot of reasons we can talk about international trips, congressional delegations are sort of the one area where members of Congress in a bipartisan way can actually spend meaningful time together over a long period of time. And those opportunities just don't exist anymore the way that they used to. And I think Senator McCain realized that those trips were important 
for that reason to say nothing of the broader foreign policy reasons that you know he he went on those trips to advance but you know he always went out of his way to ensure that he was pulling together you know a bipartisan group of colleagues because he really saw it as the State Department, the White House, the Defense Department are going to travel internationally. They're going to represent the executive branch. The importance of congressional travel in his mind was to show that there was bipartisan American support in the form of the elected representatives in the Congress for the kind of international engaged foreign policy that, you know, that he cared about and represented his whole life. And, you know, the, the thing that I appreciated about both of you when you were at the State Department was that you understood how to engage with, you know, with the Congress and with a senior member of Congress that way, where it wasn't canned, it wasn't scripted, it wasn't talking points, it wasn't, you know, we have everything right. It was an open dialogue. It was a recognition that these are hard problems. We're trying to figure them out the same way everybody else is, genuinely open to advice, willing to sort of take him into your trust and vice versa to have a candid discussion knowing that you know the other side isn't going to use it for advantage or leak it after the fact. That to me was really, it was enlightening. Uh, it was encouraging. I, I hope that you know, those kinds of things are happening now. I, I fear that they're not as much as they should be. You know, I, I learned a lot, not just on the trips themselves, but you know, in the kinds of engagements that I saw that you guys had, executive to legislative branch. You know, but the trips themselves were, they were everything from sort of high level fascinating conversations with senior leaders across the world who, in many cases, he had known for years or even decades. And then, you know, he always went out of his way to ensure that we were blocking off time to see the places we were going, right? So that it wasn't just the airport, the road to the hotel, the hotel and the ministries. It was, you know, the historical sites, the cultural sites, you know, the places that made these these locations special. And that was something he he cared deeply about. So, you know, we put the work in for sure. Um, but he also left time to, you know, not just have fun, but to really kind of, I think, take in what what's special and important about the places we were going. Yeah. Hey, Chris. Just to just to be clear, we were we were quite scared of him as well. So <laughs> <laughs> I I um I had my share of of getting yelled at. In fact, um, I remember my eight year old son at the time as we were walking in for my confirmation hearing to go to um, to India. He said to me, he said do you think John McCain is going to yell at you in this hearing? And I said, probably, but it'll, it'll be okay. And, and, uh, no, but see, you, you did the one smart thing that many people have not figured out, but few did, which is that if you have young children behind right. you, you're less likely to get shot. In the so, face, and just, so. just as an aside, he, he was tearing the hell out of my co, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, panelist at the hearing. And when he got to me, he said something like, I think you'll be adequate in New Delhi. And I, I took that as like a huge, <laughs> A banner of pride. Sorry, I have one final question before we turn to your book about McCain. And it kind of takes us away from Asia a little bit, but I think of, you know, him in, in all these roles that we just talked about. But I also think of him, I guess my most powerful memory of him is in, was it 2018, where he walks onto the Senate floor around midnight, suffering from cancer, and essentially votes against his party and his, you know, sitting president to save the Affordable Care Act. Can you just give us behind the scenes where you did you know that was coming? So I, um, 
I had nothing to do with healthcare when I worked <laughs> in the God. Senate, and I think all, all of America can be happy about that. Um, but it was it was definitely playing out while I was there, and you know I remember it very clearly. You know there was uh, there was only a handful of people in the office, and I'm now I'm completely blanking on the occasion whether it was uh, you know we were on minimal manning, but um, there there were only a handful of people there, and and he genuinely was torn and was wrestling with the decision. You know I think that he had a had a somewhat of an inclination of what the right thing to do was. I think he actually had a very clear idea of what the right thing to do was when he came back from Arizona, made the speech on the floor of the Senate. But I think then in, you know, kind of the week or two that followed, you know, you had a lot of pressure being put on him from people in Arizona, people in the White House, his colleagues. And that's hard. You know, I mean, he was genuinely struggling with that. And, you know, there were a handful of people in the office who, you know, who who he was really talking about it with. I think he was he was kind of wrestling with it a lot himself, you know, listening to people without, you know, kind of tipping his hand as to how he was thinking about it. But, you know, uh, I think it was the day of, you know, I very much remember, you know, it kind of just solidified in his mind, you know, that this was the thing that he had to do. And he knew it was going to be hard and he knew he was going to come under fire. His colleagues were not going to like it. A lot of others weren't going to like it. And, and that genuinely affected him. I mean, he was not happy about what he was doing. Yeah. But he also knew that it was right. He believed it was right. And I was actually on the floor when that happened. Wow. You know, it was it was a powerful moment because, you know, I think even in the run up to it, I had an in, I had an inclination of what was happening. But, you know, the vice president was on the floor, you know, kind of twisting his arm to to change his mind. You had others who were trying to do that. And, you know, for a while there, you thought, look, maybe this could go either way. But when there were a handful of us who who knew kind of what was coming. Right. Um, it was a pretty it was a pretty powerful moment. But again, to be clear, I mean, I had nothing to do with it from a substantive <laughs> yes, standpoint. Right. He never said, "Hey, Chris Bros, what do you think about what I should do on healthcare?" I mean, he he knew well enough to never even ask me. But uh, yeah, it was it was an incredibly powerful moment. Well, there were a lot a lot of the moments like that over the years. I think about the 2008 election when a woman in a debate stands up and says, "You know." said some nasty things about President Obama and, and McCain tells her, you know, it's just not right yeah. what you're saying. And that was, you know, there's like moment after moment like that domestically, but also internationally, just standing up for democracy, human rights, kind of American, not American values, kind of universal values. We don't do that anymore, unfortunately. And and so I, he just, you know, he, he, leave, he leaves such a, such a legacy. And, um, so anyway, thank you for your service. And obviously we were all, you know, huge beneficiaries of his service. Chris, you were one of those guys when you left, you were so hotly recruited. I remember like people were thinking, would he go to a think tank? Would he do this, do that. And, and, you know, you ended up going to a highly innovative small firm based out in California. And I just, I mean, you were very careful during that period. You didn't talk very much about it. You didn't really describe your thinking, but you know, now in retrospect, what made you decide to go from the job you were in uh, as staff director uh, to work at this? I mean, it's incredibly exciting, but what were the factors that came to play? Yeah. So I knew that my job would end, you know, when, when Senator McCain left the chairmanship. And then obviously, um, you know, once, once he was diagnosed with cancer, it became clear that my job would end when, when he passed away. I, I didn't want to, to seek to stay 
in the Congress because I believed that I had the best job with the best person at the best time that I could have done it. I didn't want to to move to the executive branch and stay in government service that way. So I, I knew I wanted to leave government. I knew that I wanted to stay engaged in national security and national defense. I mean, I didn't want to shift and do something completely different. I knew for my myself, just temperamentally, that you know I wanted to remain engaged in the policy debates and uh, the think tank world, but I, I didn't want to do that full time. Um, I wanted a more operational role, you know, a leadership role, and and I wanted to be at a place where we were really focusing on the kinds of emerging technologies that I write about in the book that I'd spent a lot of time with Senator McCain kind of learning about, you know, trying to advance inside of the defense establishment. When I kind of looked around, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to be at a smaller company. You know, I was excited and drawn to the sense of adventure of a startup, the opportunity to, you know, to be employee 40 as opposed to employee 40,000, yeah. um, you know, have the opportunity to really kind of shape where this company was going to grow, how it was going to develop. When I drew that Venn diagram and sort of thought about, you know, well, what what sort of fits that need in the middle, there weren't a lot of companies. There weren't a lot of people doing that work. And that's, again, part of the problem that I, that I write about in the book. How I ended up uh, with Anderl was somewhat fortuitous, you know, where I, I just got introduced to them while I was still on the Senate. I was really intrigued by what they were doing. I liked the idea of you know, a technology company that was trying to bring these emerging technologies that had been largely developed by the, you know, in the commercial world and create a place where these kinds of engineers, this kind of talent could work on national defense problems. It was it was really appealing to me, and you know, we 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 kind of got to talking, and you know, we didn't really know whether it was going to work or whether it would make sense, and you know, through that process, decided that yeah, like let's take a chance on this, and I've never looked back. I mean, I've been there for eighteen months. Uh, we have quintupled in size in the time that I've been there. We're doing some incredibly exciting work, um, and you know, a lot of thought went into that decision, and I believe it was all it was all worth it because I. I, there's never a day that goes by that I think that I made the wrong decision. Uh, much to the contrary, I, I am 100% certain that I'm in the place that I need to be. That's great, Chris. Um, amazing opportunity. Let's turn to the book. Again, The Kill Chain, Defending America and the Future of, of High-Tech Warfare. I'll just start from a, a really very, very basic question for those people who haven't read the book or know what, know what the kind of lexicon means. What, what, is the, what is the kill chain? Yeah. So I, I, I tried my hardest in this book. I, I really wanted to write it, you know, not just for experts and specialists and people kind of inside the beltway. Um, I did want to write it for a general audience. You know, the way I thought about it was I wanted people like you guys who are very steeped in these issues, who know these issues, you know, to, to recognize that it's a serious treatment of the, of the problem. But I also wanted to write it for my mom and dad. I wanted people who, you know, who were knowledgeable, who were informed, but who weren't experts and specialists to be able to read it, to be, you know, kind of engaged by it, challenged by it, informed. So I went out of my way as best I could to sort of avoid jargon. The, the reason I sort of gave in a little bit to jargon in the title, kind of, I guess, the, the theme of the book is because I actually think it's a compelling idea. Um, and I think that it helps to explain a lot of the a lot of the issues that I was wrestling with and the kind of the diagnosis of the problem that I think we have in national defense. Um, the ways in which we should think about how technology can help us and where technology is not going to save us. But, but ultimately, the kill chain is a, is a concept that pretty much everybody in the U.S. military knows and most people outside the U.S. military have never heard of. And, you know, it is, it is essentially describing sort of a sequential process of, you know, what militaries do when they're, when they're competing or when they're fighting. And it's essentially no more complicated than, 
you have to first understand what's happening. You have to gain information. You have to gain understanding about the place that you're operating in. Secondly, you have to make decisions about what you want to do. And third, you have to take actions to accomplish those objectives. It's a sequential process. Uh, you can't make decisions and take actions before you understand what's going on. I mean, you can, but you're likely going to make mistakes and probably probably fatal mistakes in a military context if you do that. But all of those pieces have to go together. And you know what, what I found in the course of my career, the way the reason I wanted to focus on it was just the belief that we have become so enamored of the tools that we use in national defense for so long that we actually lose sight of the objective, which really is this sort of kill chain process of understanding what's happening, deciding what to do and acting. And that the real the real reason we you know, build military forces or bring new technologies into our military is to improve the quality of our understanding, to make better and faster decisions, to take faster, more relevant, more effective actions, regardless of what particular military tool, platform, system is, en- is enabling human beings to do that. And I guess that's the final point, is that it is a human-centric process. Uh, this is fundamentally about you know, how humans understand what's happening how you enable human decision-making um, and, and keep humans in the position of agency over the actions that they're taking, especially when those actions involve you know, the use of force or violence and conflict. Um, and I think to me, that's a very helpful framing to put around these questions of emerging technology, artificial intelligence, you know, autonomy, where you know, there's, there's a lot of question of how will humans and machines relate to one another in the future when uh, the machines are becoming more intelligent, more autonomous, more capable of doing things on their own. Again, I think the, the sort of this concept of the kill chain is helpful because fundamentally the human is at the center of it. Chris, can I just ask about, I mean, you gave a presentation a couple of years ago at the Aspen Strategy Group out in, out in Colorado, and it was a great presentation about elements of what you just described um, applied to the Asia Pacific. And you basically said that, you know, traditional military, we were, excuse me, wedded to certain forward deployed platforms like carriers. We had a small number of bases and that you know we relied on certain communications capabilities that were vulnerable and that that fundamentally our approach was somewhat outmoded and we faced challenges and risks that we had really not effectively confronted and i was struck i remember during one of the breaks talking to some of the senior military there a couple of military admirals that were there and they were very confident that what you were saying was wrong and that the united states still had certain kinds of elements of dominance in the Asia-Pacific region. And I remember thinking at the time, I, I, was, I am much closer to where you are, but I'm just struck by the nature of the debate where you've got, you know, some people extraordinarily confident, you know, yes, we're you know, a couple of steps ahead in a few areas. We know what we're doing. You know, we've been to a couple of rodeos and others saying, no, there are elements that are challenging some of our long-term investments. How do you understand that debate? Is that entrenched interests? Is it just the dominance of the the cavalry, you know, the horse-drawn cavalry before the Second World War? What What is it 
And, you know, how do you think this is going to play out? Yeah. You know, I, I, I go out of the way, my way in the book to make it clear that, you know, look, in the case of, of China and its military modernization, I, I don't think they're 10 feet tall. I don't yeah. think all hope is lost. Um, I do think that particularly now there's areas where the United States still has, you know, positions of advantage. You know, there's obviously a lot that I don't talk about in the book because I can't. I, I think it's more about their trajectory. Um, and I think that over the past 25, 30 years, that trajectory has been in the direction of the United States increasingly being put in the position of playing a losing game. The United States continuing to double down on that losing game, despite the fact that, you know, kind of right in front of our eyes is materializing a threat that is calling into question, you know, the ways we build military forces, how we are planning to, you know, to operate them. I think partly it's it's a story to answer your question of why. I think it's a story of when you're being disrupted in slow motion, even if it's happening quite quickly, it feels like slow motion. Yeah. It's hard to recognize. You know, there's sort of an element of the frog in the pot problem. Um, I think partly it's hard. It's always hard for insiders to, you know, kind of see themselves clearly in the mirror, you know, kind of turn the knife on themselves in, in diagnosis. And, you know, you, you don't want to believe it, right? That's the other part of it. You know, it's, it's, it's not something that you want to be true which makes it just psychologically easier to, you know, look for reasons to explain why it's not. You know, I think that the, the, the sort of the narrative, in my opinion, as I've watched this now for, for several years, um, you know, certainly was, was trying desperately while I was in the Senate to sort of steer this in the direction that I think it needed to go and still trying in the book. I, I do think that narrative is shifting. I mean, I think when you talk to senior military leaders, certainly behind closed doors, uh, less so in public, they're much more candid about, the problems that we have, the vulnerabilities that we have. And again, that trajectory going in the wrong direction for us in the, in the direction of really an erosion of America's military dominance and then really kind of a, a, an erosion of America's kind of position of military primacy, especially in the Asia Pacific region. They're not going to come out and broadcast it as much publicly. But, you know, I'll tell you, when you look at public comments of someone like the current commandant of the Marine Corps, I mean, he's saying publicly in as full-throated a way as I've ever heard a senior military leader say that we have problems that are not problems at the margins. They are systemic. They are strategic. Um, they sort of cut to the core of the way we have been building and planning to operate our force for a very long time. And unless we make some radical changes, we're going to be left behind and, and sort of rendered irrelevant to the future of military competition. Yeah, what's amazing about your book, uh, Chris, is you you really challenge all of us because we, we tend to think of the military being the most innovative, the most technologically superior with the greatest, latest systems across the board. You've got this great quote in the book. I just want to read it to the listeners. It says, the American military now finds itself in much the same position that Barnes & Noble or Blockbuster Video did around the rise of Amazon, Apple, and Netflix change or become obsolete. But you're, if, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You're also saying though, you're not just suggesting we have to go to more technology and, and it's not solely about technology. And you clearly make the point it's not about budgets. You're not calling necessarily for a great expenditure and spending. So tell us what you mean about change. What, what kind of change are you talking about specifically? Yeah, I I think the problem that we've had for for a while now is is that we're being outfought. You know that again when I when I focus on China and its military modernization, 
they're not seeking to play the same game that we are. I mean, in some respects, they are. They're building aircraft carriers. They're building fighter jets, you know, the kind of traditional tools of military power. But, but really, the focus of their military modernization for 25 years now, 30 years, has been, you know, a concerted effort to build a different kind of force that fundamentally is directed at undermining the ways in which America projects military power. And it's happened very systematically, very methodically, piece by piece, you know, targeting forward bases, targeting the carrier, the carrier battle group, you know, strike aircraft, um, the like. For me, the challenge is to bring it back to that sort of metaphor of the kill chain, which is why I think is is relevant and helpful. Um, I don't think that technology is just going to be kind of the wizard wand that's going to save us. And I think we've fallen into that trap in the past. Um, I don't think we can afford to do that again. Again, I think the problem is because we're we're being outfought, you know, we're being put into a kind of a strategic position of playing a losing game that if we keep trying to do it is going to impose costs on ourselves, you know, financial and otherwise. The first thing that I think we have to do is is think differently about what it is we're trying to accomplish. And I think that goes all the way up to, you know, what are our objectives? You know, I find it frustrating when a lot of these debates about, you know, defense policy in the Asia Pacific they focus only on sort of the ways and means, you know, that if we operate differently with some different things, we'll be fine. Um, I actually think the challenge is much broader, and it really does call into question some of what we say we are trying to accomplish. So for me, the focus of the kill chain is really about saying, if we keep that sort of process or objective uppermost in our minds, you know, it allows us to make a transition and figure out how new technologies can be brought in to allow us to do different things, to solve problems differently. But also recognizing that new thinking applied to old systems could also be could be very advantageous for us. I mean, you have incredibly creative uh, members of the U.S. military who are still coming up with interesting things to do with the B-52 60 plus years into its service life. That is new thinking. Like that is thinking about the problem and then coming up with creative ways to solve it. From a budgetary standpoint, you know, look, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, if we cut the defense budget in half, everything will be okay. But I, I am trying to suggest that we could spend a trillion dollars a year on national defense, the ways in which we are currently spending it. And I think we still lose. I think unless we think differently about the types of forces we're building and how we're planning to use them, more money in the same spent in the same ways on the same things is not going to get us to where we need to go. Um, in fact, it's probably going to you know bankrupt us in the process of being defeated. So, you know, I think ultimately, if I kind of look at the future of defense spending, especially in the aftermath of, of this current coronavirus crisis, defense spending was already beginning to trend down. And that's only going to happen, I think, more steeply and more uh, consistently for as far into the future as I can see. So, you know, to me, this is now a necessity, figuring out how we do more with less, um, how we think more creatively about the types of forces we're building and, and the investments we're making. We have to do this because, you know, we're not going to have the levels of resourcing that we've had for the past couple of years. But I also think it's doable. You know, it's not doable if we cut it in half, but it is doable if, you know, I think what I see is kind of a realistic budget forecast for the next five to 10 years. Um, I think we can be successful inside of those fiscal constraints, but we are going to have to change pretty considerably, I think, kind of the ends, ways and means of our defense strategy. Can I just ask one final question, uh, Chris, and again, a little bit outside the scope of your book, but as you talk about defense budgets, think about your former agency where you also work at the State Department. And while you were sitting there as staff director of the Armed Services Committee, you again, you're authorizing 
six, $700 billion worth of spending each year, new programs, new research, incredible. I mean, it, it's really the only comprehensive piece of legislation that gets done each year. Right. Whereas your colleagues that work on diplomacy or development or even intelligence are kind of left very kind of behind and don't have anywhere near what the military is getting. How, how does that hamper us? Is there anything we can do to fix that? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple, couple things in response, you know, I, as we mentioned earlier, I, I spent the better part of five years at the state department and you will find, you know, no, no stronger advocate for, you know, robust funding for American diplomacy, American development than me. You know, it is something that has been incredibly frustrating to watch in, in the past few years, uh, kind of consistent attempts to just gut the state department's funding. I also would say though, at the same time that I think the, the, the challenge for the state department is much the same as the defense department, which is, we need to think differently. You know, I think to a certain extent at a strategic level, we, we are being outthought and outplayed and new and better thinking doesn't cost money. I would like to see us, you know, at a minimum start there and not fall into the same trap that I think, you know, we, you know, I personally am criticizing the defense department of, which is they need to be thinking differently. New thinking costs nothing. And actually, you know, if they, if they begin thinking and acting in different ways, they might actually end up saving some money in the process. The thing that I also, you know, really try to underscore in my book is I'm only looking in the book at the military dimension of this problem. And I recognize fully that it is a multidimensional challenge in terms of the sort of competition uh, between the United States and China or the kind of renewed era of great power competition that we're talking about. Diplomacy, development, you know, economic tools of power, our values, these are all going to be you know, incredible parts of our strategy. And in many respects, I actually think they're going to be the greater sources of American strength in our military. So there is absolutely the question of ensuring that we're putting the adequate amount of resources into those, you know, kind of tools of American influence. But I don't want to fall into the trap that, you know, if somehow we doubled the State Department's budget, everything would be okay. I do think that there's a challenge to that agency as well to be thinking creatively, strategically, competitively about you know, what are our sources of strength in this long-term competition with China? Um, I think that we could be doing a lot better in that regard um, before we even get into the size of our diplomatic corps or the budget of USAID. Chris, that was terrific. Really a tour de force. Your previous career, your book, and perspectives on the future of American power. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Hey, hey Chris, so uh, where do people get the book? And uh, if they need to download it or it's out available now. You can get it at Amazon. Uh, you can get it at local booksellers, probably online, not in person. Pretty much easy to find, I think, online. And you know, I'm pretty, pretty easy to find online too. So you know, on social media. Read the reviews. David Ignatius has a great review in the Washington Post last month. Everyone has reviewed it really has uh, rated it highly. So Chris, great. And good luck with it as you're out on the trail. Thanks a lot, guys. Chris, thanks so much. And thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And again, I'd like to also mention you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Chris online at our website, theasiagroup.com. And you can also download it on your traditional podcast sources. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.